0: Hello and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that you're a cattle farmer in the middle of Morocco. A man from a microfinance organisation approaches you and offers you a small loan on very favourable terms. There's no catch. The loan would enable you to increase the number of cattle you own. You could even create work for your unemployed son. And yet you decide to turn down the offer. Why? We'll be hearing more about this Moroccan cattle farmer later in the podcast. But Esther Duflo has been trying to work out such conundrums as one of the founders of the Poverty Action Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's made her name in the world of developmental economics by putting the poor front and centre of her research using a methodology called randomised control trials. She's just co-authored a book entitled Poor Economics. And in an interview to mark the book's launch, she began by explaining to me what exactly those randomised control trials involve.
1: So the idea of a uh, randomized controlled trials which we also call RCT is to adopt a methodology that is similar to the way you would test the effectiveness of a drug. So in order to know the effectiveness of a new drug, we take a population of people, then we randomly form a group and we give them the new drug and the other group gets a placebo or the old drug. And then you compare the results, um, the illnesses in the two groups, and you find out whether your new drug is effective. So Mm -hmm. the idea of randomized control trial is to adapt this idea for anti-poverty programs. For example, if you're interested in the effect of remedial education program for children, you can take a sample of schools, and in half of those schools put the program, and in the other half, you don't put it in place. And then you compare the results of the students in the places where the program has been put in place and the places where it's not been put in place so the uh, jamil poverty action lab is a network of researchers who implement uh, this kind of projects to find out what really works uh, in development and in the fight against poverty we are now present i think in 23 countries Uh, with about 200 experiments, either finished or ongoing. So you've recently written a book about some of your findings, and there's one
0: section of the book in which you suggest that if governments were to invest in particularly the health sector, that there are some, and to use your words, low-hanging fruit, i.e. the returns on your investment could be very great. Could you explain some of those policy prescriptions that you are advising?
1: So this idea for global health is something that has been argued actually for a while, this idea that there are interventions, particularly in preventive health, that can have huge rates of return. So for example, um, a child who doesn't get malaria in childhood will make, uh, according to some estimates, 50% more money every year during their adult life likewise a child whose mother had enough iron during pregnancy had enough iodine during pregnancy will grow up into a healthier more productive individual um, bed nets for malaria immunization for children oral re solutions so all of these technologies that exist are something that many people have noted would be tremendous uh, public health investments the Problem is that the take up of those technologies is relatively low and we identify several factors for that. Some have to do with supply systems, the health systems are not always as as effective as they should be. Part of it is the understanding, you know, how effective those things are. People don't fully understand necessarily. Part of it have to do with procrastination and the fact that it's difficult for us human beings to do something today for benefit in the the future. So we try and sort these things out and come up with some ideas for effective interventions to encourage the take-up of those technologies. Presumably
0: another factor why these very easy strategies are not being implemented is the resources involved. And it did strike me as I was reading through your policy prescriptions, things like free malaria, uh, bedding nets, for example, immunization programs, greater investment in infrastructure. You're talking about quite a large investment.
1: This is not such large investment when you put them in correspondence to the benefits in the future. You take, for example, treating children for intestinal worms. It costs about a dollar per child per year. And the benefits has been estimated by Michael Kramer and Ted Miguel at about, I think it comes to about fourteen hundred per year, fourteen hundred over the life of the child. So if you're spending a dollar per year for, say, five years, so you've spent $5 on a child for an investment of $1,400, That's there are very few investments that have these kinds of rates of return. So I don't think saying, oh, where is the the money going to come from should be the constraint. I also hope that books such as this one would help politicians understand that not spending on public health is just a very, very bad way of saving money.
0: Is it possible to conceive of implementing these policy prescriptions without getting the failures that you have in the past? So, for example, the benefits going to the wealthy,
1: corruption, things that have been the cause of failures of past policies. So we are devoting an entire chapter to this issue. It's it's called Policies, Politics, precisely because a lot of people would have this idea of saying, oh, but it's not interesting to try to... Design good policies because at the end of the day, politics is determining whether or not the policy will be implemented or not. It is not the case that this political constraint determine everything. It's just not the case for two reasons. One, even in reasonably badly governed countries, there is still slack to do good things. So you have a country like Indonesia, which was, you know, n- until recently not a democracy and very corrupt, et cetera, and they still manage to. Reduce infant mortality, improve education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have, on the contrary, political systems that are reasonably fun- well functioning, like India, the, the world's biggest democracy, and yet some policies are just functioning very, very poorly. And that it's because the policies was not particularly well designed, and therefore it was not going to work in the first place. And so even in a reasonably good functioning country, there's plenty of bad decisions that are made just because they're bad decisions. So spending some effort in thinking what can be a good decision is actually important. Just finally, to wrap this up, a lot of your book describes the lives of individuals
0: that you've come across in the process of your research. Can you explain one person that you've come across who really made an impact on you because you thought if they only did this, then their lives could change so dramatically, or you've seen some dramatic change in their life because they've taken um, appropriate action? Is there one person who really sticks out in your mind?
1: I think there are no one whom I would say, oh, if only he did things, their life would change so dramatically because when you talk to people at the end of the day you understand the structure of their decision you understand why they end up there so you're rarely in a situation where you could do better than them but I have almost the opposite example which is a a man called uh, Ben Taib whom I met in in Morocco and uh, I met with him with a with staff from a microcredit organization. The reason why we went to meet him is that he lived in a village where no one wanted to take a loan from this microcredit organization. And we went to ask him why he was not interested in a loan. The reason he said, Look, I have a number of cows. If I got a loan, I could get more cows, but I don't have space to put them in the stable. So that would be complicated. I don't know what to do with it. And in any case, I have enough. That's fine. And we came back to the to the capital and was talking to the to the head of this organization, who is a wonderful man called Fouad Abdelmoni and Fouad gave us exactly what you were asking for, which is if only he could do this, that would change his life. And he gave us a business plan saying, well, he could get a loan, he could build a new stable and put the cow in the stable, and his son, who is not working, could start working, and then he would make that much money, and then with the extra money, he would get more cows, and, you know, within five years, he'll be out of poverty or something. And this contrast was very interesting, because I think there was a profound logic in what Ben Taib was telling us. At the same time, Fouad was also probably right. He was just making a plan for someone that doesn't exist, for some ideal person who is not the real poor man or woman that you encounter in the in the world what we try and advocate in the book and it's not rocket science is that you need to understand why people do what they are doing in order to conduct effective policy what is a little bit striking in in the world of you know international organizations or governments etc is that often we have the very strong ideological views that tends to guide what we think the right policy should be with no regard for the people that these policies are actually supposed to be applied to. What we try in this book is to bring back the poor people, put them back center stage and say, look, you have to understand how these people function and why they're doing what they're doing to have any chance to design a policy that is going to be of help for them. And that was
0: Esther Duflo of the Poverty Action Group at MIT and author of the recently published Poor Economics. And you can hear more interviews with leading economists on our podcast page on www.imf.org forward slash podcasts.